Hello and welcome to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from Oxford's Rothermere American Institute. My name's Adam Smith. The Winter Olympics will be held in Beijing in 2022 and there are calls for the United States to boycott the Games. A coalition of 180 human rights groups is urging governments to not send their delegations over reported human rights abuses in China. If China is engaged in industrial-scale human rights abuses, should it not be treated as a pariah? Might an American-led boycott be an effective way of making a stand for democratic values? After all, if America doesn't do this, the last best hope of Earth, then who will? America has been here before. In 1980, a beleaguered Jimmy Carter was facing the political torture of the Iranian hostage crisis. Iranian students continue to hold more than 50 hostages at the American embassy in Tehran this morning. Ronald Reagan was cruising to the Republican nomination. Americans were driving to the movies to watch The Empire Strikes Back, and the Soviets were 18 months into an invasion of Afghanistan. By Friday morning, Kabul was entirely in the hands of the Russians. The Afghan army was confined to barracks, and the invasion of the country by up to 100,000 Russian troops who'd been massing for weeks on the northern border had begun. For the first time since 1945, Russian soldiers had gone to war outside the communist bloc. The Carter administration, perceived as losing control of the Middle East after the Iranian revolution, was in a dilemma over how to respond. Detente has been dealt a damaging, if not mortal, blow. They shelved the Salt Arms Limitation Treaty and withdrew the US ambassador from Moscow. Could they really send a team to Russia as if all was well? That this is a great country, that we ought to act like a great country, that we're strong, that we're powerful, that we're generous. Republican Senator William Armstrong put it this way. If we're not willing to be strong and uh, decisive, then it seems to me that we invite the kind of uh, situation we find ourselves in. And three weeks later, President Carter made this ultimatum. I've sent a message today to the United States Olympic Committee spelling out my own position that unless the Soviets withdraw their troops within a month from Afghanistan, that the Olympic Games be moved from Moscow to an alternate site or multiple sites or postponed or cancelled. Well, joining me now to discuss Carter's 1980 Olympic boycott and ask what lessons it might have for the present are Joe Onek, Deputy Counsel to President Jimmy Carter, who managed the White House's efforts to boycott the Moscow Olympics. Nicholas Sarantakis, Associate Professor in the Department of Strategy and Policy at the US Naval War College and the author of Dropping the Torch, Jimmy Carter, the Olympic Boycott, and The Cold War, published by Cambridge University Press. And Patrick Anderlich, a historian at Northumbria University whose research focuses on American politics during the late 20th century. He's the author of Donkey Work, Congressional Democrats in Conservative America. Joe, we just heard Jimmy Carter there laying out an ultimatum. And what was the aim? Well... I think the aim was twofold. I don't think anybody thought somehow this was going to get the Soviets to march out of uh, Afghanistan. But it was a sense that the Soviets should have to pay a price. And of course, losing the United States and we hope most other countries from the Olympics would be a price. In addition, as you know, uh, we imposed a, a grain embargo on sales of grain 
to the Soviet Union, which was certainly significant. So I think the first thing was to pay, make them pay a price. The second, I think, was almost visceral. Did you want American athletes and the American flag parading before Brezhnev and the Kremlin leadership during the Olympics? And the idea that the U.S. flag was going to be flying when they had done this, I think, was just not acceptable. Patrick Anderlecht, we heard Jimmy Carter there. He was laying a red line down there. There's no going back from that, was there? No, I think once you have made that kind of ultimatum, you really have no choice but to follow through on it. Foreign policy terms, you make those ultimatums or you don't. But it really kind of capped Jimmy Carter's foreign policy of trying to kind of build better relations with the Soviet Union and also to put a greater stress on um, human rights and to put human rights at the centre of his foreign policy, which a lot of historians have picked up on. Nick, the Soviets had broken the rules of detente in 1980. What were those rules? Well, generally, it was a lessening of tension between the United States and the Soviet Union. And some of the rules were we're going to have more cultural exchange, we're going to sell them grain and wheat, that we're going to respect each other's boundaries. And uh, one of the big ones is that we would each stay in our own sphere. And the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan kind of broke one of those rules. It was it was basically the first time that the Red Army had gone somewhere that it had not been in 1945. So that seemed to some people to be the first step in uh, moving into other regions of the planet. They had been pretty content to dominate Eastern Europe uh, militarily. And then, of course, uh, as we all know, there were confrontations in other, other places using proxies and using other means, diplomacy, information, propaganda. Patrick Anderlecht. Since 1945, the principal way that the, or the kind of principal strategy behind the U.S.'s Cold War efforts have been defined by something called containment, which is this idea that the United States should commit itself to preventing the spread of communism across the world. Um, detente is a kind of readjustment of that policy that emerges at the end of the 1960s into the 1970s. And detente, which, um, you know, is a French word. It means, uh, means relaxing. Um, and it's, it refers to a kind of lessening of tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union, particularly by pursuing things like um, arms control treaties, like uh, SALT, Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. One of those was signed in 1972, and SALT II was, um, had been signed and was under consideration by the Senate in 1979 when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. So, Yes, detente had had its critics, many of whom said that the Soviet Union was using uh, supposed American credulousness to um, advance their own aims. And so when the Soviet Union goes to war in Afghanistan, it, it seems to vindicate those critics in the eyes of many Americans. It was all very well for the president to say that he didn't want American athletes to go to Moscow. But the president of the United States didn't have direct control of the U.S. Olympic Committee. Uh, you were the one who had to try and make this work on the ground. So what did you do? Well, I and others set up a whole set of meetings with uh, the U.S. Olympic Committee, with some of the important federations, particularly track and field, to explain our position we also met, and I organized some of them, with the athletes themselves. Uh, the president invited all the athletes and their families uh, to come to the White House. 
we tried to set up uh, our own games, track and field event in Philadelphia, and ultimately to try to make sure that they didn't go to Moscow. There's no question that they wanted to go. I want to go to Moscow. And at some points, they sort of threatened that they might go no matter what. They wanted to go. Nick. And one of the big things that impressed me was how strong support for the boycott was in the United States. It faded over time, but it was there was always a clear majority in favor of the boycott. The American uh, public did not want to be used. Uh, they did not want to see their uh, athletes used. And there was a lot of comparison to the 1936 Berlin Olympics. And a lot of people thought that would be a repeat of uh, what happened in uh, 1936, where the Nazis just, it was a propaganda fest. On February the 13th, the Winter Olympics held at Lake Placid in America that year began. And the International Olympic Committee's president, Lord Kilarnin, made the organization's position clear. All 73 members present at the 82nd session of the International Olympic Committee are unanimous that the Games must be held in Moscow as planned. As the deadline for President Carter's ultimatum passed, the US boycott was put into operation but it remained up to the Olympic committees of each individual nation to make the final decision. The US Olympic Committee in Colorado Springs delayed their decision until April the 12th. American gymnast Kurt Thomas had this to say. I'm supporting uh, boycott for the Olympic Games right now because I feel that it's in the best interest of the country. However, it is very disappointing for me because I've trained my whole life for this competition and my only real chance to get a gold medal in the Olympics is, is to be able to compete. Now I'm not going to get the opportunity to compete. The British Olympic Association was one of the first to decide. They voted overwhelmingly to go to Moscow. Its chairman, Dennis Follows, said afterwards, They feel strongly about sport as being a bridge, as it were, between nations. They don't like sport to be used as an instrument of foreign policy. Though I don't think they'd mind very much if they were being used for positive reasons rather than negative ones. By positive, of course, I mean building bridges rather than busting dams, if I may use that phrase. On April the 12th, backing Carter's decision, the US Olympic Committee voted not to go to Moscow. On May the 14th, Francis defied President Giscard d'Estaing's advice and voted to go to Moscow. Two days later, West Germany's backed Chancellor Schmidt and voted not to go. Europe and the world were divided. The thing is, is if you look at the minutes of that U.S. Olympic Committee meeting, there were a lot of speeches, some quite good on both sides of the issue, but I don't think the USOC could have gone given how unpopular the idea was. And there were people who voted to boycott who later told reporters, I resent the position I was put in. Now, Britain wants a boycott. The Thatcher administration or the Thatcher cabinet, excuse me, wants a boycott. And the British Olympic Association says, no, we're going. And they went. Joe. Somehow the relationship 
of sports to government in UK and maybe France is somewhat different than in the United States. Not in the sense that the United States has any control. We have no control. We have no government agency. But somehow this sense of independence, the sanctification of allegedly amateur athletes is just greater. The fact that the American people supported this was very important. And, you know, the House and the Senate both passed non-binding resolutions. And I believe the House was 386 to 12 and the Senate was 88 to 4. So that, you know, the USOC had to take that into account as well. But it, it is at least possible, even in the face of all that, that they would have gone if it wasn't clear that various steps would be would be taken to make it very, very difficult because we could impose sanctions on them the way we impose sanctions now against trading with Iran. We could have, and we did on NBC, impose sanctions that didn't allow them to use dollars. Uh, and so NBC didn't cover the event and the track people would have had very great difficulty getting there. The attempt to persuade allies to boycott the Olympics was by no means a disaster. Uh, West Germany uh, boycotted the Olympics, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Italy, a number of other countries boycotted the Olympics. Um, but there were uh, prominent uh, countries, including the UK, that did send most of their delegations. I believe some of them didn't go. There are some individual sports where their governing bodies decided not to send competitors to Moscow, but most of the high-profile ones did. It, can you comment, Patrick, on what the successes and failures of this of the boycott diplomacy might tell us about American foreign relations, the state of the Western alliance, as it were, in general at this moment in time. From the perspective of the Carter administration, I suppose you can uh, take certain solace from the, the extent of the boycott. Um, I mean, there were, I think, 66 nations that ultimately participated in the boycott to some extent. Um, and uh, although there had been, you know, there's been some precedent for Olympic boycotts, yeah, 1956 for in, in Melbourne, for example, when you had effectively kind of like multiple boycotts over the Soviet um, repression of the Hungarian uh, uprising over the Suez crisis. Um, but, uh, the 1980, I think is the, the most wide ranging boycott in, uh, the history of the Olympics and the modern history of the Olympics. Um, and so you can see the, the success of, uh, of the US there. Um, I think you have to be careful in drawing um, too much uh, about the kind of the state of the Western alliance from how successful the United States was in persuading other nations to um, to uh, persuade their teams not to go. I think the UK is an instructive example in that the Thatcher government was very gung-ho about a boycott. Um, you have, if anything, the Atlantic Alliance in one of its strongest conditions in the kind of the 1980s with the Thatcher government, but still was not able to persuade the UK's Olympic authorities not to send at least some of a team. Um, and then you have uh, another kind of key fact, and um, which is that China participated in the Olympic boycott um, on uh, trying to uh, compel the Soviet Union to um, bring the uh, bring its troops out of Afghanistan. Now, obviously, that um, kind of uh, represents a, a kind of complicated uh, story about the relationship of the United States and China. But you can see that as an example of, of U.S. 
um, diplomatic success in, in what it had been trying to do for a lot of the 1970s, which is widen a rift between the Soviet Union and, and China, um, which had begun with the opening to China in the early 70s, continued with the normalization of relations under the Carter regime. Um, so you can see some kind of successes, but I, I think we have to be careful in drawing these broader lessons from it. In the end, Nick, were the Moscow Games a success or, or a failure? How much did the boycott affect them? I argue in my book that there really was no impact on the games. And the big reason is there's a certain glamour or magic to the Olympics. And it's a world gathering. And, well, too bad the Americans aren't here, but so so sad. The three dominant uh, nations in the Olympics at that point in time were the United States, the Soviet Union, and East Germany mainly because uh, the Soviets and the East Germans uh, threw a lot of state support to the Olympics, uh, to their Olympic program. And uh, obviously they're you know doing things like, uh, for all practical purposes, they're professionals on paper. This guy's a, a lieutenant colonel in, in the uh, Soviet Army, but his job, his, his military duty is to be a goaltender on the ice hockey team or, you know, run track or something like that. So uh, a lot of state support there. But Two of those three dominant powers are at the Olympics. You have actually more countries attend Moscow than you have attend Montreal. So in that sense, it didn't have much impact. And there's a lot of happiness. A lot of world records are set at the Olympics, about 30 world records, which is about the same number set at Montreal. Now, the Soviets learned the wrong lesson uh, from the 1980 boycott. They learned The lesson they learned is we are what makes the uh, the Olympics special. So in 1984, when they want to uh, teach Ronald Reagan a lesson, uh, they boycott uh, the Los Angeles Olympics. But the lesson, I think, is that they have a magic all their own because we're having a party in Los Angeles. So sad you're not here. You're lost. So uh, we win gold medals and, you know, the Russians aren't here. Who cares? Joe, you... Uh, were the man who, one of the people who went about implementing the American boycott in 1980. Um, you believe that was the, the right thing to do then. Is it? Would it be the right thing for the Biden administration to do now? It's such a different situation. The relationship between the United States and China is so much different than the United States and Russia, for example. So we don't parade the athletes and we say, look, you know, we're not parading. But a uh, a thousand U.S. companies are operating in China and groveling before these same leaders. Groveling, I may be exaggerating. Groveling before these same Chinese leaders anyway. Uh, first, and we have a billion dollars worth of trade or a billion trillion dollars worth of trade, whatever it is between us. So it's a very different uh, situation. Uh, and indeed, to the extent that we wanted to put leverage on China, we have far different forms of leverage that we could put, uh, which for a whole variety of economic and environmental reasons, we're probably, you know, we, we might, probably shouldn't do, but it, it's just a different situation. We bought nothing from Russia. Uh, uh, you know, people judge I me. Mean, Russians don't make anything. Even today, it's a joke. What, what do you buy of Russia? I mean, you buy oil, but there's not a single gadget or a single anything that anybody buys. Uh, from Russia, and that was uh, equally true then. The relationship with China is so much more difficult. Plus, you know, we thought, I think, uh, the administration thought that there was a very good chance that the boycott would be even more successful than it was. 
that, for example, UK and France wouldn't go, in which, in which case maybe other European countries wouldn't have gone. Uh, I don't think anybody believes that our boycott is going to lead any else to boycott, because quite frankly, China has too much influence and is too willing to use it, that countries that don't go will be punished uh, in a way that uh, they don't want. So uh, to the extent that you might say that the Carter boycott was unsuccessful because major com- countries like UK and France uh, went, our boycott would seem even more unsuccessful because I'm not sure who would, uh, again, I'm, it's not my area, but I'm not sure who would join us. And then there is the issue where an athlete could say, wait a minute, you're not letting me go to China, but General Motors sells more cars in China than it does here. And Ford is in, you know, every American flagship company is in China. How does that make sense? So I do think it's a different situation. Tell GM not to sell cars there if you're going to tell us we can't play there. So I I think it's a more difficult situation. Patrick, among other things, you're a historian of the Carter administration. Um, You've thought a lot about Carter's achievements and his failures. If you were advising the Biden administration now, Patrick, would you be saying to them, what is it, if anything, about the Carter administration that you would be saying to them, look, you can you can learn from those guys? Is there anything? And if there's anything, is this one of them? I don't think I'd be encouraging them to boycott the Beijing Olympics. It's kind of doomed to failure and would almost certainly uh, certainly blow up in in the faces of the Biden administration. What is really intriguing to me about this, and uh, as this topic, you know, the Moscow boycott has come back into the news as there's discussion of a Beijing boycott, is the way this kind of reveals how the the Carter administration has been kind of historicized. Um, because I, I, there was a, a quote from Senator Ted Cruz of Texas just last week in, in which he said, um, you know, Joe Biden, don't be weak. Don't be Jimmy Carter. Don't punish our athletes. And so there's this way in which the, I mean, the very fact that Jimmy Carter was defeated after one term has created this sense in which people just assume that, um, because he lost everything he did must have been a failure. In broader terms, um, what would I, um, tell the, uh, Biden administration about Carter administration. I, I think my sense would be pay more attention to congressional management. Think about the kind of big issues and themes that you want to communicate. And don't go to Camp David for 10 days. And You know, oddly enough, the great beneficiary politically was maybe Ronald Reagan ultimately. Because in 1984, without the Russians and the East Germans, the USA won, you know, bigger of medals than ever. And there were the cries of USA, USA, USA. And I think it attributed to the sunnier climate, which made uh, Reagan an easy victor uh, in the election. So oddly enough, it certainly did nothing, I think, for uh, Jimmy Carter, but uh, uh, maybe helped uh, Ronald Reagan. Nick, Joe, uh, Patrick, thank you both um, very much indeed for joining me on the podcast to talk about the Moscow Olympics of 1980 and their possible lessons or otherwise for today. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you all. I was speaking to Joe Onek, Deputy Counsel to President Carter, and the historians Nicholas Sarantakis and Patrick Anderlich. The Moscow Olympic boycott is the story of a very particular Cold War moment, 
and a very particular problematic American presidency. But whether or not it offers any lessons or warnings for the present, one thing that's sure is that sport and politics will forever be mixed up. To paraphrase the Trinidadian writer C.L.R. James, who was in turn paraphrasing Kipling, what does he know of Olympics who only the Olympics know? You've been listening to The Last Best Hope, the podcast that examines America from the outside in. The producer is Emily Williams. I'm Adam Smith. Goodbye. Goodbye.